calling out the myths, misinformation, and BS in the wellness industry. This is the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. Here's your host, holistic pharmacist, supplement expert, Big Mouth, Dr. Neil Smoller. Broadcasting from the most famous small town in America, this is the podcast that pulls back the curtain on the health and wellness industries. Tonight, it's a special event. I am literally in the middle of a webinar on the COVID vaccine. We're going to talk about logistics, safety, and efficacy. And I'm going to jump right in because I have a few dozen beautiful people here staring at me, waiting to get this intro over with. So here we go. You absolutely should get this vaccine. So I've just kind of given away the whole buildup. I just wanted to start right at the end here because the whole conversation of whether I should or shouldn't is kind of silly to me, right? On the vaccine side, this is one of the most studied and scrutinized vaccine in our medical history, period. And it's coming at a time when our technology for manufacturing vaccines is at its finest. And on the disease side, The pandemic caused by this virus is devastating literally everything, including our own health. There are cases upon cases of long-term vital organ damage resulting from even the most mild cases. So you, which is practically everyone, should get this vaccine. That should not even be a consideration. But here's the thing. I'm just a pharmacist. <laughs> some of you may know me already. Some of you may not. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, PharmD. I'm a holistic pharmacist. I'm here because I don't push drugs. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I believe that both conventional medicine and the wellness industries oftentimes stand in the way of our optimal health. We need a new path with true holistic care to live our best and healthiest lives. So you can visit drneilsmoller.com for my blog, podcast, videos, and more. All of this content that's in this video will be shared there. I'm not a researcher, but I do care about everything that goes into your bodies, your foods, your medicines, supplements, and immunizations. People like me because I ask tough questions and I help people understand complex topics, but mostly because I'm not an alarmist, nor am I a fear monger. So when I'm saying this stuff, it's because I've asked already and I've checked and I've made sure that you're getting the best information. Now, one of the things I have to say, and I'm actually, my blog article this coming week is about this. The idea that I'm a holistic pharmacist that's promoting vaccines is tough for people to swallow. And you should know that I'm not a shill for supplements. I'm not going to say, oh, yay, supplements, just take that. I am certainly not a shill for big pharma, although I would love the paychecks. I'm just really, really sick of people getting the bad information and making unhealthy choices because of it. And therefore, you should know what my default vaccination opinion actually is. Any vaccine. COVID or otherwise. If you don't want it, don't get it, period, right? I'm not going to convince you of anything. People are stuck in their own echo chambers in 2020, right? They're going to believe what they want. But I believe that there are three good reasons not to get a vaccine. One, you have an allergy to the vaccine itself or any of the components. That's a no-brainer. Two, you're deathly afraid of needles and you just don't want to admit it to anybody except for me. And three, you're an adult and you don't want to. Those are all legitimate reasons to not get any vaccine. But if your justification is based on anything else, especially the mountain of anti-vax propaganda that's been circulating for far too long and any anti-science information, your position is flatly wrong. So don't get the vaccine, but don't pretend the misinformation 
that you're using for your justification to not get it is accurate. So I want to make sure that I come out of the gate with that strong, strong opinion because it's all the rest of it is silly. This is a no-brainer, the biggest no-brainer of your life. So when we talk about coronavirus, or I guess I should say when people are talking to me about coronavirus, their concerns fit into one of three bins. Safety, is it going to hurt me? Right? Efficacy, will it work? And what does that mean for my life if I get the vaccine? You know, my arm is sore. What else is there? Right? Logistics is like the questions about when can I get my shot? So we're going to dive into this actually with logistics first, because I feel like that's the more like urgent question for some folks, right? So the logistic questions are when will I get it? How or where will I get it? Like who's going to give it to me? Are you going to give it to me, Neil? Maybe. I don't know. Which vaccine will I get? And what does it look like? What's that process look like of getting the vaccine? So when will I get it? That's the big question, right? Everybody's mind, right? Everybody's like, ah, when am I going to get this thing? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> and that's the best answer anybody can give you right now. Is, uh, I don't know. Yeah, like who knows when we're going to get the vaccine? The slightly more refined answer is not today. So take a deep breath. That's what my psychologist would tell me. <laughs> uh, the shorter version of the most probable answer for all the faces that I see out there mid-February to mid-March is when we're going to start to see it, okay? So let's better understand how the rollout's happening and the math behind my estimate, okay? So this is an important thing, okay? This is the priority groups as per the CDC, all right? The states themselves are the ones that are deciding how they're going to follow this, okay? So phase 1A is what we're doing right now. These are the healthcare personnel, normally the ones that are right in the front lines, the licensed professionals, and then also long-term care facility residents and their staff. Phase 1B is what's coming next. This is the frontline essential workers and people 75 and older. Raise your hand. That's you. So great. So the frontline essential workers thing, we don't really know what that means. We have no idea if they're going to say grocery store workers or my buddy has a shredding company that has to stay open because people need their documents shredded, especially at the White House these days. Whoa. And uh, so who's going to be in that little group? We have no idea. Um, Phase 1C is after that. This is people ages 65 to 74. So these are the seniors, right? Everybody classified in that high-risk group just based on their age. And also people that are high-risk that are over 16. So if you have underlying health conditions and you're not older, you would fit into 1C. And then this will be the other essential workers. This is probably where my shredding buddy is going to be. And then finally, phase two, this is people 16 and older that aren't in phase one. So the question is, is which group are you in? Uh, let's just do an example. The average patient of mine, um, one of the things to understand is there's a lot of people in each of these different groups. And I think the numbers are very important to see. So phase one is 24 million people. So just before anybody that's a 75 and up, we have to immunize 24 million folks. And then there's about 50 million in the next group. And then 130 freaking million people in that 1C where most of my clientele would live, right? And then we have about 100 to 120 million people. And then there's all the kids under 16 right? It's a lot of people, right? So let's use that example of that 66-year-old person, right? I'm 66, so where does that put me? I have no underlying health conditions. I'm in phase 1C, right? Before they can even get to my group, it's 24 plus 49 million, 
right? 73 million people before they can even get to me. And then there's 129 million in my group. And like, you can claw your way to the top if you'd like, (laughs) but I'm just telling people, assume you're in the middle. Okay. So that means there's about 63, 65 million people in front of you, right? So if you add those two numbers up, that makes you number 193 million (laughs) 500. So you are uh, SOL. (laughs) It's going to be a while. It's going to be a little bit. So, and here's the worst part of all of it. There are 5.3 million people that have been vaccinated since December 15th, yet there's 17 million doses distributed. So if you haven't heard, a lot of people are pretty upset with this Operation Warp Speed that's moving like molasses in the winter, okay? Washington Post has this. This is a very great tool. If you're getting antsy and you want to know where you're at, you can always go to that list. But if 24 is our first threshold and we're at five, that's pretty problematic, So let's do some more math. So imagine for a second that we got 50 million doses on December 15th, which we didn't, and we get 50 million doses on the 15th of every month, which we're not going to for at least a little bit. What does that look like? Well, here you see the December 15th, there's 50 million, January 15th, and then so on and so forth. And you can see, again, if your number is 130 million, whatever it ends up being, right? February, March, right? That's kind of where you are. But here's the catch is that everybody needs two doses, right? So if you cut that number in half, you've got 25 million people that could be immunized in December, 75 million by February, and you, the 66-year-old, you're going to be near April, mid-April, right? And that would be great if all of those (laughs) hypotheticals I just suggested were true. But Here's where we are for the administration, and here's we are where we are for the date. So we have a big gap to close, and I am hoping that starting January 20th, the goal of 1 million per day uh, starts to become real, okay? Um, I believe that the community at large will get doses mid-February to early March with most non-high-risk adults getting immunized in late spring or early s- summer. Bad news. So, but things can change, of course, if we have more efficient distribution, if we get a greater supply. And there's a lot of people opting out. So, you might be able to get a dose earlier, right? So, the question, when will I get it? I hope I've answered that con- uh, conclusively for you. And this is my favorite thing. So, people are like, oh, Neil, I see your stress when people ask you about the COVID vaccine. And it's not that I'm stressed when people are asking about it, it's that I have to then fight with people. Because as soon as I say all my math and I'm red in the face, as you know, I get. People will say, well, I'm high risk though, right? <laughs> I, I get it, but I don't have any vaccine to give you. <laughs> I can't, you're not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put you on a list. I don't understand. It doesn't matter. There are hundreds of millions of people that are eligible like you, right? That are either with you or before you. And what I, I know is going on is just your exhaustion is showing. You're tired. This is stupid, like doing this for so long. And so I, I definitely, I feel you, I understand. And you know, one of the hardest things that I, I think is that you're doing everything right. Ex- then you see all these dopes on TV that are like anti-maskers getting their vaccines, right? That feels unfair. And I just want you to know that not only is there light at the end of the tunnel, but we're so physically close to the end. We just need to push through to winter. Through winter, I think once we get through winter, we're going to be in a, a completely different place. This is a miracle that we could even get it now. Just the idea that I have a vaccine in my arm 
10 months into a, 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 a novel pandemic. It's, it's unbelievable. So don't be frustrated, but be very thankful that we have this opportunity to end this too soon because a lot of us were thinking this is going to be 18 to 24 months minimum. So patience key, deep breath. And I've been encouraging folks, hold the door open for those weaker among us, right? If you have some sort of technical, you know, condition uh, that would classify you, but, you know, your grandmother needs the dose, let your grandmother get the dose, you know, because, you know, if you're number one, 139 million or 210 million, it doesn't really matter if you got the dose, except for the peace of mind that you get. And I'm going to talk about that concept and that kind of like, uh, like little thought a little bit later when we're talking about the efficacy of the, the vaccine. So patience, though, is, is key. So somebody has asked, what are the different underlying medical conditions? And, and the, the truth is that the CDC has kind of been vague, like people age 16 to 64 with underlying medical conditions with, with, which increase the risk of serious life-threatening complications from COVID-19, but they don't specify what those are. But we can kind of dig a little bit and we can get some information um, you know, uh, from them. And I have that. So the, the, the common question of will my disease qualify, I can't answer it. I don't think anybody can. I think it's just important for us to, to know that uh, there is a list and whether or not you'll fit into that list, at least early on, um, you know, that's, that's to be seen. So um, what I'm doing is like going by the idea of what is identified currently by the CDC and others as high risk for having complications from COVID. I guess that's the best way to say it. Okay. So those are the chronic lung disease folks serious heart conditions, obesity. I actually asked on our podcast if I should eat more cookies to get to the front of the line, um, type two diabetes, chronic kidney disease that requires dialysis, immunocompromised conditions, and sickle cell disease. So to dial into that immunocompromised, what does that mean? So people undergoing cancer treatment, those who smoke, unfortunately, bone marrow or organ transplant folks, immune deficiencies. If you have HIV or AIDS, that's poorly controlled, which hopefully is a, a non-issue anymore with our great technology. And if you're on high-dose steroids or other immune-weakening medications, those are all immunocompromised uh, uh, risk factors. And then there's this other high-risk conditions piece that just kind of gets tacked on, which talks about asthma and some weird blood disorders and all this other stuff, even like dementia, type 1 diabetes. So all of these are potential conditions. You know, when, when am I going to be eligible? Is it going to work? We don't really know. We'll know later, but at least you can kind of get a sense of what they're looking at. So when it comes to the question, how will I get this vaccine when it is finally time for me to get it? It's only being supplied to specific health facilities right now and groups to distribute only to those folks who qualify for 1A. So it's not going to the general public. It's going to very few places, like probably 50 or 60 compared to the thousands that it'll go to in the future. In the future, pharmacies, doctor's offices, and more, we've all registered to provide the vaccine when the supply becomes available for 1B and after. So the community level stuff will come to uh, community practices. But in New York, it was just uh, announced that mass vaccination centers are going to pop up all over the place. And Pat Ryan, the Ulster County executive, echoed that. Um, he's going to say he said that there's going to be mass vaccination clinics to administer 50,000 doses a month. And if there's 180,000 of us population total, uh, that's only a few months we can get it done if the supply was there. Right. So that's great. Um, I believe now that I've heard this, that you're going to be getting your dose either from a private practice 
or more likely it's going to be in a mass immunization clinic. And that's the way it should be. Um, a little bit of the behind the scenes, because people want to know this stuff. So the state is the one that actually gets the doses and then approved facilities are going to pre-book whatever's available. So that means that we're going to be clung and scratching at each other. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to compete and fight against big corporations or anything like that. I just want to get what we need and I just want to administer it. But I'd prefer if we had public mass vaccination clinics and treated this as the public health emergency that it is, right? You have to be able to get rid of the doses in seven days. So in our application process, we have to show them how many vaccines I normally give in a week. So if, if I give 10 vaccines every week, they're not going to give me a thousand doses. Okay. So we can transfer it to other facilities, but it has to be uh, on like a permission from the state basis. If you have unused vaccine, you won't be able to get any more. And you have to log these doses immediately, if not within 24 hours. And here's the big one, because a lot of people are asking, can I just get a dose? If, if, and you can't. Like we signed a contract with the state that says you're going to follow the priority list. And if you don't, you're going to lose your ability to do this and you might even get fined. So nobody's going to be hawking doses on the side, which is nice. Uh, another question from a logistical standpoint, people say, well, you can't even store the Pfizer vaccine. And we don't even have to. Uh, we, we don't have ultra-cold facilities. Very few places do. Um, they do have limited stability in a non-ultra-cold environment. So you can put these in a freezer or a fridge for a short period of time, normally like five-ish days. So I don't have to have the ultra-cold stuff to have the Pfizer vaccine. Now, there's new vaccines that are coming out every day that require easier and easier storage. So it's going to be a non-issue soon. But even if I were to get the Pfizer today, I could get rid of it in five days. I mean, Jesus, think about it. If I got a thousand doses, do you think it would be difficult for me to get rid of that? I don't think so. I'd probably have it done in an afternoon. So, you know, the idea here is that if you register as a vaccinator, you have to have the capacity to handle this. So that question of like, can you handle this? You don't have to worry about it because that's part of the administration process. Then this question is important which vaccine will I get? Because a lot of people will ask this, which vaccine am I going to get? Well, this is what we say to the kids, you get what you get and you don't get upset, right? And you sing a whole song because here's the deal. If you think you have a choice, if you think you should choose, or if you think you're going to delay vaccination to get what you want, you're missing a huge opportunity for yourself. We're in the middle of a public health crisis. So brand name selection is a very American thing <laughs> to want to do. Uh, it's not going to be a consideration, nor should it be. You absolutely shouldn't care. And I'll explain why, uh, but you should get whatever is available. And so if COVID vaccination becomes more frequent, which I am predicting that it will be, um, that you're getting something like this every couple of years, then we're going to have all the choice in the world. And we can talk about it then. Again, right now, public health emergency, we got to get this vaccine in our arms. A question that came up from one of the lovely ladies staring at me right now is, do I have to get tested for COVID first? And no, you don't have to get tested. It's not tied to receiving the vaccines at all. But if you've recently been tested and you're awaiting results or you have an active case, they most likely won't even let you in the building because, right, that's the screening protocol before you're allowed in medical practices right now. Uh, and in fact, most consent forms require 14 days since uh, potential exposure. One thing that I didn't cover in the slide here is this idea of, can I get my flu shot and then a week later get the COVID vaccine? And right now, all we know is that the 
studies were done with no other vaccinations for four weeks before or after. So it's not like you can't, but they're probably going to encourage people to get your stuff done now. So that way, when it comes time, you're vaccine free for at least a month. Okay. That wasn't asked of me uh, on my screening, but I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Another person asked, will the vaccine cost any money? And yes, it's costed you money already and you've paid for it via your taxes. Uh, unless you can figure out how to pay $750 a year in taxes, uh, you've already paid for it. Uh, the vaccination is most likely going to be free for everyone this go around. Uh, I didn't even, they didn't even ask me about billing or anything like that when I went in. So then we get this concept of, you know, you're a pharma shill. You're just promoting this because you want to make money. Literally somebody asked me, you know, well, you or told me basically that you're, the reason you're promoting the vaccine is because you make so much money on vaccines. And here's the truth. Uh, pharmacists make on average $15 for the administration of an immunization. And uh, that may seem like a decent amount of money, but I think it should be way more. I have to screen you to make sure that you're eligible for any vaccine. I have to take the liability. I don't want to like give you CPR in case there is this rare adverse event. We have to have the equipment, training, compliance, billing, everything like that. Even with all of that, I think 30 bucks is probably a fair number, right? The COVID vaccine is going to pay 22 bucks a shot. I mean, nobody's getting rich on vaccines, even the manufacturers. Okay. So let's be honest with ourselves about that. The promotion of the vaccine by medical professionals isn't a financial uh, bump, right? That's not what we're looking for here. So let's get over that. So now moving from logistics to safety, the second most important thing to talk about. I think you probably might have missed this. Uh, I had lots and lots of downloads, but we had this great in-depth discussion on my podcast. The Big Mouth Pharmacist, Dr. Ray Yip, a local, came on. He's an epidemiologist, CDC alumni, and it's available on my YouTube channel uh, as well as on the podcast. But we discussed everything in depth, and it. I want you to listen to that, okay? Because we go into phase one versus phase two and phase three and all of that stuff that everybody wants to know about right now. And you're going to get the brief version, the quick version here, just because I don't want to bore anybody. So this concept is what we talked about. Is the vaccine rushed, right? So why was it done so quickly when vaccines normally take a dozen years? And the reason that people ask that is because they're worried about the safety of the vaccine. Now, that's an excellent question, but it leads me to a tangent that we have to discuss. Are you ready for this? Because this is quiz time. I need head nodding out there. How many patients were in the phase three trial of the shingles vaccine, Shingrix, everybody? You can answer in the chat. Oh, you don't know. That's weird. Okay. How long was the phase three for the flu vaccine this year? Oh, you don't know that? Okay. Uh, how many cases of anaphylaxis to the Tdap vaccine happened last month? What? You don't know? Oh, I'm surprised. You probably don't know. The COVID vaccine is one of the most publicly scrutinized vaccines ever. And there's so many people paying attention to every little detail that they would never think about ever before. It's the microscope, man. The world's attention is on this vaccine. And so many people have something to gain with anything newsworthy in 2020, right? It's all about the attention. We are hearing every little detail without understanding what the normal process is. And that's why I think it's important to listen back to that podcast. The podcast that I did with Dr. Yip, he did those things. He does vaccine distribution in poor countries. Um, so I think it's very important. The idea here is that we are looking and we don't understand what we're like looking at 
But the reality is we have radically more and better data than any other vaccine trial in the history of vaccines, right? You have to hear that and that has to resonate. It may seem rushed, but it's the opposite, okay? So my job as an anti-misinformation expert, I have to draw attention to one more thing because the reason that we're scrutinizing is because we're worried about the safety, but some of that worry is being fueled by the people that have a lot to gain in the other direction. If this thing goes south or if there's something negative, there's some sort of failed you know, component of this vaccine, whether it's real or perceived, that will make them money from attention and trust and all of the things that they gain. And these are the charlatans, this is the anti-vax community. These are the propaganda specialists. They're looking for this thing to fail because they will succeed. So you have to reset. So when you're talking about the safety of this vaccine and uh, the concerns you have around it, I would guarantee that there's something probably behind it, some sort of hesitancy that is only there because of the noise. So our skepticism at times is far from healthy around this, and it's fueled by that persistent propaganda. Uh, you may not support any of that propaganda, but it's there in the back of your head and, and kind of like nudging at you. So this vaccine was not rushed. And here's the truth. It was quick because we got lucky. Lucky. That's the word that we have to remember here. Within days of this hitting the streets, a scientist in China mapped the entire genetic sequence of the virus, allowing all of us to start research immediately. He shared it. That was amazing. The development started right away. I believe um, the Turkish folks that made the Pfizer vaccine, I think they like, had it developed in a couple of days. It was quick, right? So the rest of it's been all of the testing. So the second thing we got lucky about was that COVID has these clear, obvious targets, right? You've seen this picture that I'm sharing here. Those horns, those spikes, that's awesome, right? That's an easy target to pick out. We can make that. We can, that looks different to us. COVID vaccine, uh, COVID virus is relatively stable. That's lucky because a lot of coronaviruses will mutate rather quickly. And one of the things that we pointed out is that the reason that we haven't been able to like nail down some of the vaccines in the past is because they're changing and we're trying to hit a moving target. The other thing that we got lucky is that we gave all the money, right? <laughs> we threw every dollar that we could at it and we invested in the infrastructure to make the vaccine before it was approved. Normally, that's a years long process after the fact. After we get all the paperwork done and we get approved, then we'll spend the money, the billions of dollars to bring something to market. That happened in parallel. And we spent all of our taxpayer money to do that. And we got lucky because it actually worked, right? The other thing we did is we removed that red tape. So we're lucky that we didn't have to deal with all that nonsense, right? That normally trips up the process. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to flip the script a little bit, right? So we want to say, how could this be quick and safe at the same time? Cross that out. What if research was well-funded and bureaucracy was reduced? What could we accomplish if we were able to come up with a vaccine in 10 months, right? So don't let that negative uh, story be told. Flip it around. Make it the positive. What else could we do, right? So most of the time in vaccine development, just to kind of shorten my podcast, outside of the paperwork, right? And everybody's taking their sweet time in their government jobs, right? <laughs> it's the development of that attack point. So because we don't know how to attack a virus or a bacteria and we have to figure it out, 
Um, it takes a long time to develop kind of a strategy. But again, this thing is ugly and we can get right at it. But the other one is that we have to have enough cases to study the vaccine. So Dr. Yip talks about HPV and he says, you know, what is there? 150, maybe 1500 cases of HPV in New York uh, in any one year. So if we're going to run a clinical trial, how many people are going to volunteer for that? Maybe 50 to 60, right? So in order to get enough people in the trial, it's going to take years. Well, we got lucky because we mismanaged COVID so horribly. <laughs> There's, you can go to downtown Tennessee, like whatever town in, in you know, whatever state, and get 20,000 people that have the, va- the virus right now and test them. And you better believe there's a lot of people that are more than willing to get this vaccine trial, get onto the vaccine trial. So we got lucky that we messed it up so much. We had so many people to test. Um, so as a result here, we've got one of the biggest collection of data on any vaccine with the most scrutiny ever, right? So the idea that we had 30,000 people in one of these trials, that's a gigantic number for a vaccine trial. The Shingrix, I think was 8,000 people. The other thing that we have is we have multiple vaccine candidates. Everybody wants to be a billionaire. So they want, you know, cause everybody in the world's going to get this thing. So they all want to develop it. So there's a million places that are trying to rush to market, right? So they're all studying it. And each of those are being studied in the 20 or 30,000 people, right? So the results from the one in Oxford validates the one from Brazil, right? So we're using the data and we're sharing the data and it's just proving time and time again that we're on the right path. So the science is strengthened with great study control, large numbers of people and results that are replicated. It is the strongest science that we've seen for vaccines. Okay. So that being said, bad stuff's going to happen, man. (laughs) We got to be honest. We know that nothing's perfect, right? We're going to have adverse events. There's going to be people who are going to have an allergic reaction to the vaccine or its components. That's going to happen, right? There's going to be people that are going to have a rare adverse event. Imagine somebody somewhere takes this thing and then they have this weird blood disorder that happens because of it, right? There are billions of people in the world and stuff can get weird, right? Stuff's going to happen. Um, But when it comes to this, the benefits far outweigh the risks, right? Go back to that initial conversation that I said, that virus, what's the risk of catching that virus? What's the risk of you having some sort of horrible long-term problem from this? Even if you have a mild case, it's high, very high. So, and the risk of these things, adverse events are so very low. So we have to grow up. You guys know that I talk kind of straight with everything, right? We can't expect things to be perfect. Nothing is. The seatbelts in your car, the medicines or supplements that you take, the surgery that you need, the exercise you do, right? I'd like to sit on the couch because I know I won't get hurt. Um, Your diet, the coffee you drink, all of that stuff poses a risk. You could drown in your soup. Um, There's an inherent risk. So the risk of the problems here are very low and the benefit is tremendous to you and the public at large. So it's not Russian roulette because that's really the picture that people have. Oh, there's a risk. And so there's a chance that I'll get it. So it's Russian roulette instead of one out of six. It's like the the canisters, like a billion, or let's even say a hundred thousand out of out of one, right? So that you'd have to spin this big old thing, and yeah, potentially something bad could happen. But it's well, well worth that risk. So here's what really can happen, right? Pain, redness, or slight swelling in the arm at the injection site, headache, fever, chills, fatigue. This starts within 24 hours and usually persists no longer than 72 hours. And based on what I'm hearing, this vaccine, much like the Shingrix vaccine or the Pneumovax, because I don't want you to think it's rare, it's pretty common, those vaccines also cause these reactions to a stronger degree than 
like flu shots, for example, right? So you're more likely to have any one of those things and it's going to be pronounced, right? So let me give you some anecdotes. If you follow me on social media, which is Dr. Neil Smoller on Facebook and Instagram, please follow me on Instagram because there's a lot of like these like wannabe wellness influencers that are anti-vax that are just <laughs> like, I have to juggle them and I, I'm just kind of tired. I need some more like legitimate folks there, right? So, but anyway, so we qualified for 1A and we were vaccinated on January 6th, just yesterday. And here's what happened. Four of us had muscle pain at the injection site. Two of those folks, me included, had it pretty bad. I'm going to tell you, I'm not a big wussy. I, I pump iron. I can't lift my arm past this without it hurting really bad. Okay. So that stinks. And I needed pain relievers. So I took Advil uh, last night and this morning, I'm probably going to get a dose before I go to bed. Um, one person had chills and achiness like within hours, right? And she had a tough time sleeping. And then she was up here this morning and uh, she felt kind of crappy again. So she just had to take it easy, right? But two of the people had absolutely no reaction at all, okay? So the point of this is saying, yeah, you're going to have one of those things, right? And here, here's the deal. The, this idea of the, the anaphylaxis, right? A lot of us are, are, are scared of that. Right. We, we, we have this concept that, oh, I heard that there was anaphylaxis, two cases in Alaska. Right. So no medical professional, no vaccine expert was surprised that people are having anaphylactic reactions to this vaccine. Right. That's not surprising. I, I've never had an anaphylaxis ever, um, but I did have a severe allergic rash that just happened to one of my patients who took Shingrix ever. You know, I've given 10,000 doses, you know, so. It's odd. It's goofy that in Alaska, two folks that knew each other got anaphylaxis or that were like kind of close to each other, right? That was weird. But again, we're scrutinizing and how many anaphylaxis reactions happen with shingles. So we have this concern, right, about the anaphylaxis as the big kind of scary thing, but it's it's not scary or surprising. And again, most of us are going to be getting this at a doctor's office. We're going to be getting it at a medical clinic with medical professionals everywhere and all of the, the, the uh, support that we would need. And here's what we think is going on that's causing some of the local stuff that maybe the pain in my arm and potentially the anaphylaxis too. Our current best guess is that the fats that are used to kind of like, it's kind of like an M&M, you know, my M&M analogies, it wraps and coats the M&M, these fats, uh, <laughs> it coats the mRNA, uh, the, the actual component of the, the vaccine. And then there's little uh, polyethylene glycol molecules that are attached to them right? So it's like a fat shell and it's got a little polyethylene glycol. Now, polyethylene glycol, it's in everything. It's in cosmetics, it's in foods, it's in medicines, it's in supplements. Uh, it's everywhere. And it's been known to cause some local reactions. And that's probably what's kind of bugging me right now. Um, this lipid polyethylene glycol anaphylaxis is almost definitely not going to be a problem for you if you've never had anaphylaxis before. Okay. But if if you do, you're going to be at that doctor's office. You're going to be at that medical clinic when you're getting this. So you, you, you should still get the vaccine. There's no other uh, way around this. Um, there's no vaccine that won't have this risk. It's, it's just important that, you know, you should still get vaccinated. There's no good reason to not get vaccinated, right? So the vaccine's still recommended for anybody. So Getting here to the, like, you know, what's in the vaccines question, uh, because like, oh man, you're talking about polyethylene glycol. That sounds like a very harmful chemical, right? And the next question then ends up, well, what else is in there that could potentially hurt me? So the, the quick non-nerdy answer here is the mRNA, right? 
the fats, the salts, the sugar, and water. That's literally what's in there. That's what those components are. But the more nerdy answer with the chemical names for these things is here. And again, don't stress if you can't see it. I've got this on our site already, and it's going to be a part of like what you'll get your hands on. But again, it's mRNA. It's these fats and cholesterol that coat and protect with some polyethylene glycol attached to it. And then there's the saline solution to stabilize the compound, right? There's no preservatives uh, beyond the stuff that's there to help the pH work, okay? So one of the things that I like to say here is that there are no hidden or unlabeled ingredients because that's misinformation that circulates, So whatever's in that list is it. There's nothing else that's in here that could potentially hurt you. Those ingredients look scary, but they are incredibly benign, okay? And despite the local reactions and the questions around the polyethylene glycol, which, you know, to be honest with you, when I see this and I I see like everybody looking at this problem, I'm like, great. That means we're going to have a better understanding about polyethylene glycol and how we can use it and, and, you know, what's the real risk in the future. None of the ingredients of the vaccine are going to cause short-term or long-term harm. Okay. So the adverse events that we are going to experience, minus, of course, the injection site stuff, aren't from the injection. The adverse events that we're experiencing are from our immune system working. All right. So we are not reacting to the components, we are reacting to the thing, the vaccine itself. Our immune system is going, we need to work. Right. So here's another you know, little riddle for you. How many supplements are sold in this country that besides being not safe, as I say all the time in my rants and my blogs, don't do anything at all for those taking them, right? How many doses of, of resveratrol do you need to know it's working or not, right? Will you ever know it's working? And again, let's flip the conversation. Instead of saying, oh, these adverse events, those look scary to me. Let's say, man, your immune reaction to a new vaccine isn't something to fear. It's something to look forward to. My wife last night was like, I can't wait for my arm to start hurting because then I know that my body's working with this thing. I can't wait to get fevers and chills because I know my body's turning it into that memory that will help protect me against coronavirus. So I want you to look at the adverse events that I've described here as not a negative, but a positive. All right, so let's talk about vaccine efficacy, rounding the curve here, right? So how do these vaccines work? So I'm going to focus, as I have kind of through this whole conversation, on the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines for now, because we can always do another webinar when the new technology comes. So these are mRNA vaccines, okay? Basically, on the left there, the SARS virus has these spike proteins. And so we made an mRNA molecule, which can, when we ingest it into our body, will teach our body how to make the thing to beat it up. (laughs) That's the long and the short of it. We package up that mRNA, the the sequence for uh, creating more and more of those proteins that our body will say, oh my God, that's not me right? And then we'll start to attack it and develop an immune response to it. And that's how vaccines work, right? We have to have a weakened version of the virus. We have to have some sort of identifying thing uh, about the virus. And our body can see it and know that it's not us, 
and then start to develop the immune response anytime it sees that in the past. So it's kind of like giving a description of a bank robber. He was six foot five. He had a green jacket on, right? And as long as he always wears a green jacket, we'll be able to identify that person and then we'll be able to defend ourselves from that person. So in the situation here of an mRNA vaccine, we are taking the technology to make little spike proteins. We're teaching our body how to make the spike proteins. We make all of these spike proteins and then our body says, hey, that's not us. And then it starts to attack it. And then when we do get exposed to the coronavirus and see those nasty little spikes, we start to attack them. So does that make sense? It's an interesting, it's, it's, uh, I should say this, it's freaking awesome, right? It's amazing. This is going to change the way that we do things, completely change. And what's really great is, um, you know, this is Mrs. Smoller, uh, Mrs. Big Mouth Pharmacist, she was speculating that the strong immune response that we're getting to this is probably because of this technology. If you think about it, when we get exposed to a virus, right, there's a small amount of this stuff and then it replicates and then there's more of it. Or like if we get a vaccine, there's a small dose that we're putting in here. But what we're doing with this is we're telling a lot of our cells in our body to make these proteins. So it's kind of like everywhere, right? There's a bunch of these proteins being made that aren't harmful. They can't cause disease. They can't make you sick. They're just little protein molecules. So they're everywhere, right? And so we have this huge dose and our body goes, oh crap, let's get rid of all of these proteins and clean them up. And it makes this much more profound immune response. And I just think that's, it's just, it's a game changer because we can have such a, a, a high success rate. And that's kind of what I want to talk about next. Um, after I deal with one more little piece of misinformation, this idea that it's mRNA and people go, well, does it change your DNA? And the answer is heck no. In fact, if somebody says that to you, get a tack hammer and hit them with it and then call 911 because they should not be allowed to do anything. They shouldn't be allowed to drive. So if they suggest that it changes your DNA, they are literally making things up and they don't, they, they have to read a biology book, please. Right. So it's, it's a silly concept anyway, because your DNA is not some sort of like perfect thing. You know, your body's not a temple, right? Your DNA is constantly changing from the foods you eat, your, your microbiome, the bacteria that live in you, the viruses that live in you, it's constantly changing anyway. Right. And it changes over your lifetime. So whatever. So this idea that, oh my God, it could change your DNA. Well, if that wasn't completely wrong, it still wouldn't be a big deal. So this is a chart about vaccine efficacy. And I just wanted to show you. So the Moderna and the Pfizer are kind of midway down and they're 94, 95% effective with two doses. And then it compares it against other vaccines like flu and chicken pox and such, right? And the AstraZeneca is 70 and people are like, oh, well, that one's 70 and I want the one that's 90. And, you know, here's the thing about all of this, right? It's all good. All of it. All right. Don't get hung up on these numbers. We would have been thrilled with 50% or more and seeing 90% and it being legitimate is mind blowing. Okay. So, so don't think that AstraZeneca is no good because it's only 70%. All of them are great. And you can't go wrong with any one of them. Even the Chinese and the Russian candidates, which are different mechanisms of action, are like 70, 90% effective, right? And if we can validate that data, of course, because we don't want any shady stuff going on, we could use that here without a problem, right? They're all good. So then if I get this vaccine, uh, how long does my protection last? And this is another one where we go, I don't know. <laughs> we have no idea, right? The, the longer answer is probably two to three years is how long you'll have protection against COVID uh, if you get the vaccine. 
because coronavirus mutations really happen at about that rate. We know that most of our immunity for coronaviruses or viri um, are about two to three years. So um, we're expecting that. In fact, the Moderna CEO literally today, January 7th, 2021, said the protection will be probably a couple of years. That's his exact quote. So then the question is, how long does it take to work? Or can I drive directly to the bar after I get my shot? Which is what I asked my wife. Can we do that? Can we? Because everybody's going to the bar. What is so good about the bar? What's, what am I missing? Right? So Pfizer said uh, in their briefings, uh, and the FDA analysis, as reported by the New York Times, that you'll actually have a 52% efficacy after 10 days of the first dose. That's amazing. Amazing. There's 95% efficacy about seven days after the second dose. Okay. The Moderna vaccine didn't do the first dose analysis. Okay. But they do know that it's 92-ish percent effective 14 days after the second dose. Right. So we're not going to be able to let our guard down right away. Like you can't get the dose, go to the you know sports bar. You have to you know keep your guard up for a little bit. But I think you know once you get that vaccine, you can at least breathe a little bit easier. So then, really, the question is: If I'm showing these charts about efficacy, talking about all the numbers, and talking about how long it works and how long it'll last, what does that really mean for you? Right? That's the big question. What is this going to do? So vaccines will help your body identify and fight an infection, and that's it. It doesn't mean you're not going to get sick. It doesn't mean you can't get exposed to the stuff, right? You're not making a protective shield. This isn't Star Trek. Vaccines aren't 100% effective. Somebody with rampant COVID could cough in your face and the virus would try to set up shop in your body just like it would with somebody who didn't have the vaccine. But because of the vaccine, your body's going to be more than uh, equipped to respond both quickly and over a long period of time. That's how our immune system works. There's an initial response and then there's a, a delayed response. And it's going to successfully clear out the infection without much assistance at all. So you can still get sick, but it would often be very mild and you probably will avoid hospitalization. So life's not going to be normal for quite some time. And this is the idea of the I'm number one in line. I was what, number 5 million or being number 180 million in line, right? Even if you're vaccinated, you still have to follow the Trinity. You have to mask up. You have to do social distancing. You have to wash your hands. Please keep washing your hands. Like it shouldn't just be because of COVID. Uh, it's too difficult to litigate who has and has not had a vaccine, right? What are you going to do? Flash a card? People are going to make up the cards. They were making up those stupid little anti-mask cards at the beginning, right? So you're, we're going to be wearing masks until these cases go to zero, right? Or at least pretty darn close to it. And this is going to be for your own benefit because you know, no vaccine is going to be hundred percent effective. So please don't be in a rush to take off your mask. Now, that being said, I want you to see your friends, right? I want you to see your friends and your family, and I want you to be safe. So how can we kind of navigate that? So managing COVID has always been about lower risk people mingling in low risk environments, right? So low risk people are those that work from home or follow the rules and the high risk people are the anti-maskers storming the, the capital, right? Or people that hang out with too many folks. The environments, the, the, the uh, low risk environments outside, that's why we were so excited. That's why it was really good that this happened in the spring uh, versus the winter. Um, we see what happens now that we all move indoors. So the high risk environments are where there's a lot of people with a lot of masks. And remember, there's a time element too. So if you come into my store, for example, and you're buying supplements and everybody's got masks on and we're all behaving, but you sit there for an hour, there's a higher risk of you catching something if there's other people here. So vaccination will lower your personal risk tremendously. 
right? But we still have high-risk environments and we still have other high-risk people we have to contend with. So here's my anecdote, right? I'm talking to my buddy. She's a pharmacist. Her husband's a nurse manager of a dialysis clinic. You better believe we weren't even going near each other. We barely spoke during the 10 months just in case we were going to spread COVID through the phone. Their kids stay home 100% of the time. They don't hang out with anyone without masks. They're hermits, basically, and that's us too, right? Um, So they got their vaccines yesterday, just like I did. So you better believe I'm like, we're having a freaking sleepover. We're going to have a party because we know that those people are going to be super low risk. We're going to be super low risk. And while, yes, it's a high risk environment because we're inside, it's irrelevant because we're COVID negative and we would have immunity too. So this is where it's going to be awesome. So you start finding people in your bubbles that have had the, the, the vaccine and you can start to socialize more and you can, and we can kind of start to come out of the cave. And then once more and more people get it, then it's going to be, you know, like a rolling kind of return to normalcy. So here's a big question. Can I still spread COVID if I'm vaccinated? Right. Theoretically, yes. No irresponsible, well, no responsible practitioner would say no to that. Right. You have some active virus here in your upper respiratory tract and your saliva, your body's fighting it off, but it's there. And so technically it could be spread to others. But again, this is more of a us kind of put an asterisk on the conversation because in reality, that really doesn't happen. If somebody has a vaccine, they're pretty much killing it quickly and it's, it's getting out of their body, but we want to like hedge our bets. So I want you to be responsible. Follow the COVID trinity. So despite getting vaccinated, just to be sure you're not catching it and or spreading it. So you get a vaccine, you put your mask on, end of story, right? Because then if you do have some or if somebody else has some, it's not getting to you. And even if it does, it's a small amount. Your body can fight it off without a problem. Anybody that says otherwise is wrong. There are no real clinical studies that have proven this. And I know that they're going to try, I think they're going to try some dorms and stuff like that, right? To see if it'll spread around if, if people have it. Uh, so we'll know more, you know, uh, but I, I still say wear your masks because you could theoretically still spread it. And so the other question about the variant, uh, I guess what we can say about the variant is that it's going to happen. And this is why we want to immunize people as quickly as possible because these viruses will mutate. They're going to hop to animals and they're going to hop back uh, to humans and they're going to change. And if they change dramatically, we will have a big problem potentially. But all signs are pointing to the vaccines being very effective against any variant that they're detecting out in the wild. So, So I want to go back to the start for just a second because I want to say this again. This is the biggest no brainer of your life. On the disease side, the pandemic that's caused by this virus is devastating everything, right? Your own health, organ damage, the economy, everything. On the vaccine side, this vaccine is the most studied and scrutinized vaccine in our medical history. And it's coming at a time when our technology is at its finest. So in closing, you absolutely should get this vaccine. It's time for the question and answer section of our presentation. So let's begin. All right. So our first question is, do I get the vaccine if I've had a positive test in the past, but no symptoms? Yes. (laughs) That's the answer. If you've had the virus, if you've had anything, they're encouraging everybody to get the vaccine. So the next question, what type of allergies are a concern for the vaccination? So in this situation, really what we're looking for is allergies to the vaccine or any of its components, which if you look at the list of components, 
who knows what they are, right? So like nobody has allergies to those things. So if you have an allergy to polyethylene glycol, or if you have a history of anaphylaxis, you're probably going to be in a, let's watch this person bin, but there's no uh, right now uh, exclusions to getting the vaccine. Um, I'm not too sure if psychologists yet are in the 1A. So the question is, is I'm a psychologist, would I what I classify for the 1A. And I'm not too sure. You can go to the New York Department of Health and they've got the list. So, all right. So uh, this is an, a great question, actually. I heard that the coronavirus vaccine research began 17 years ago with SARS and then MERS. This development was actually not quick. And that's true. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We, there's a lot of people that did lots of research on those two diseases, but you know, the need for the vaccine died out. So we had some technology that we were able to kind of piggyback on. The next question is about pregnancy. How, uh, how have we had enough time to evaluate those potential long-term effects on the babies? Well, um, because we've had people, about 50,000 women get sick with COVID. Okay. So when they get sick with COVID, there's no fertility issues, no problems with the babies. Um, that is enough to write home about. And, you know, we have those same antibodies from getting the disease versus getting the vaccine. So there is no concern right now because, you know, again, RFK Jr. was circulating all of this misinformation. I don't know what gives him the credibility to talk about this, about how coronavirus vaccines will impair fertility and affect babies. That's not true. Now, again, we don't have direct studies in the pregnant population, but there have been a number of patients who are pregnant that have gotten the vaccine already. And there's, again, 50,000 women that have gotten the, um, the virus itself and all is, all is okay. You know, uh, nothing, nothing major to write home about there. So um, the next question, is there any research that you've seen on the reduction of long-term complications, the long COVID in patients who received the vaccine? So the question, I guess, uh, is, if somebody had COVID and they're a long-termer and then they get the vaccine, will that help them? And my thought process, you know, John's a pharmacist, so he probably has the same thought process here. No, it's not going to change anything. Like, I think that, um, you know, the antibodies are there. And I think that the long-term COVID is coming because this is not a respiratory disease. This is a, a cardiovascular disease that's causing like you know, microvascular attack. And so the healing process, the convalescent period for those uh, damages is, is going to be quite a while if there's any recovery at all. What's the actual process for getting qualified to get the vaccine? Do I walk into a, uh, to the provider, present some kind of proof of age, personal details, and then get the shot? Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the logistics of actually how to get the vaccine. So Right now in the 1A phase, this is how it works. A clinic is announced. Uh, there's links posted on the state website and you have to do like a little form. So you pick an appointment day and time, and then you have to enter some information. And then they say you have to certify that you're going to show up and you are who you say you are and you are qualified for it. When I went to get the vaccine, I had to give proof that I was a pharmacist and a practicing pharmacist in a facility. I had to write letters for all of my staff to tell them that they are going to be doing direct patient care, right? And potentially helping me with a COVID vaccine. So um, it's not a walk-in thing. You're not getting tickets for, a, uh, you know, like a, a Wu-Tang Clan concert. You got you to gotta, uh, pre-book this. And probably when we do our clinics, that's exactly what I'll be doing is a, um, like an online uh, a completely online system 
where you just sign up and pick a date and pick a time and it prints everything out for you. And you come with your ticket and we give you the shot and you just walk out. So that's what it'll be. What's the latest regarding the vaccine for kids under 16? I believe that there weren't any kids in the first trials and you are right. And this is why life for me isn't going to change at all because our kids aren't vaccinated and it's not until the cases get down to zero that we'll be moving anywhere. Um, there will be some trials probably later uh, in children, but right now we got nothing. Are there any trials I might go for? That's a good question. Uh, I don't think so. I think that uh, on the state side, I don't think that there's anything uh, that's available. I know that early on, they the state actually had kind of a place where you can sign up for it, but that right now isn't available. So any other questions or thoughts or concerns? Cindy, you can answer. Go ahead. Yeah. So Neil, is it true that if you get a reaction or you feel achy that you should not take an NSAID or Tylenol because that'll interrupt your immune response? Yeah. So this goes back to the early days of COVID, right? Where we were realizing that there was this cytokine storm, this hyper-inflammatory response that was happening and taking anti-inflammatories at the wrong time could be problematic, right? But it was reasonably a short time after that, that we said, oh, you can use NSAIDs. It's not a problem because we were about NSAIDs. We were about ACE inhibitors. There was a number of drugs that we were concerned about. And it kind of goes to the idea that, um, you know, when people were promoting all these supplements for coronavirus prevention or treatment, I stress how dangerous that is because this is an unknown thing. We have no idea what we're dealing with. The science is unfolding every minute. We should not be willy-nilly about this. We should really kind of dial everything back. But yes, NSAIDs are my drug of choice. And I, I, I mean, my hair is receding, but uh, other, other than that, uh, I'm doing okay. Now, you can use NSAIDs along with, uh, you know, to manage your pain and, and the symptoms. So, Thank you. So what will be the process for getting the 1B vaccine? I'm really thinking, so in New York, I'm thinking that we're going to have mass clinics. It's going to be just like I did for me. You're going to go online. It's going to say, okay, it's 1B time, right? And so you're going to go to a website and everybody's going to rush and crash it. And then you're going to try to get a spot and there'll probably be four or five spots per clinic per 10 minutes. And you're going to sign up for a time. And then you're going to certify everything and they'll tell you to show up. And then just like most of us, I'm sure, have experienced trying to get into a building, especially a medical building during this period where they're screening you at the door and you have to kind of like do all the, the normal like, you know, Trinity type stuff. And you'll go into like I went into a waiting room. It might be a big open area and you will be screened and you'll sign the consent form. And you'll get your vaccine and then you'll move to another place and you'll sit there for 10 minutes to 15 minutes. And once your timer is up, I said, I said, Siri, 15 minutes. And once my timer is up, I stood up and I just walked out. And so that will be probably exactly what you'll experience when you go through this. Neil, maybe I missed this, but um, how, how, how are people going to become aware of when it changes from 1A to 1B status? And is this something that, at least in Ulster County, that um, Ryan is going to have? Or Oh, my God. Like, just think about it. Just let's, let's yeah, just doodle, yeah. on, doodle on this for a second. What if I got coronavirus vaccine tomorrow? What would happen? <laughs> I, it's, it's telephone, right? I 
I tell one person, hey, I can give you a vaccine or I make an announcement and then it just explodes, right? Everybody talks about it. it's going to be in the paper. It's going to be everywhere. So I wouldn't, and this is one of the things I say a lot in the source, I wouldn't be worried about missing out on that opportunity to claw and scratch to be first because you will know, you know, and there's no lists. The, the list is 7 billion people long. So I wasn't even thinking of being first. I just mean when it moves from one overall phase. I'm not very good at clawing anyway, but but um, when it moves from one overall phase to the next, I think uh, the the, the communications have been very great. I think you know that's the one thing that you know in New York we've been very lucky about. Yeah, we have somebody who's briefing us every single day, and mm-hmm. so it'll be a morning briefing, and they'll make that announcement, and then everything will light up like a Christmas tree. You know, and yeah, so, because it's a big step. For us, yeah. where 75 year old folks can get it. So yeah. um, it might even be like a preemptive thing. Like what'll probably happen if I can kind of dream, um, mm-hmm. they'll probably either make the announcement and then pre-booking will be available for clinics, which means then we're like a week away from actually getting it, or they'll allow us to pre-book and then people will start hearing that it's I can order it and we can start getting it and then it'll move. Okay. So it's one of those two things. So long story short, you're going to hear, you know, it'll be talked about. So, Thanks. Welcome. Hey, Neil, I just wanted to thank you very much. This was so informative and so clear. And so, yeah, your usual, no BS. It was really great. And I uh, want to thank you so much for doing this. This was wonderful. My pleasure. Of course, my pleasure. My, my greatest pleasure. This has been really good for me this entire thing, besides the horrific nature of this, almost none of my patients even got sick with this. Um, everybody learned a lot from us and our, our rantings. And so I feel like this has been great because this was a, a huge, fa- I feel, failure in leadership across the board. And people didn't need, they didn't need anything but direction. Tell me what to do, right? I don't need all the information. Just tell me what to do. And so- that's what I love. So I appreciate you guys appreciating this. This has been great, you know, uh, to, to be, feel like I'm actually helping people. So Salma Kaplan just said that there's an Ulster County notification request form on the COVID-19 Ulster page. There's also one on the New York state page. They'll let you know when you're eligible. So that's pretty sweet. So go there and I'll, what I'll do is I'll remind my producer to put that link on our site too. So this will be on the new site, drneilsmoller.com on our COVID section. Uh, there's a blogs link at the top. The site's still broken. So I'm getting it fixed, I promise, but the COVID stuff will work. So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. Check out our other episodes on the podcast platform of your choice or visit drneilsmoller.com. Until next time, be well. <laughs>